Welcome to the podcast. I'm Shira Schoenberg. With me today is a man who is the public face of Celtic music in Boston. Brian O'Donovan is the longtime host of GBH's weekly show, A Celtic Sojourn, and he just celebrated 20 years of hosting the live show, A Christmas Celtic Sojourn. The clip you just heard was Brian singing along with the cast of the 2013 Christmas Celtic Sojourn show. Thank you so much for joining me. Great to be with you, Shira. Brian, I know your roots are in Ireland. Tell me about where your passion for Celtic music comes from. Well, Shira, I grew up at a very, very exciting time for Celtic music. It was redefining itself in the late 70s, 1970s, that is. And uh, there was a lot of exciting approaches to Celtic music, adding in um, different instruments, adding in different different, uh, harmonies, and making uh, groups who were coming together much like the rock groups of that time from um, from England and from America. So there was a lot going on to attract our attention to what had hitherto been something that, that, that we didn't see as hip or fashionable, and that was traditional Irish music. Um, so there was, a, there was a lot to kind of attract us into the core of the music and a lot to keep us there once we got there. And am I right that music has really always been a family affair for you? You are right. It's definitely very much a family affair. In my younger days, my dad and siblings were very much into singing, and uh, they would learn songs and then pass them on down to me. And those songs really didn't have to be of any particular genre or type. They were just songs to, to accompany our work day or our uh, walk to school or home. Uh, but, but definitely my sisters and brothers were very much into music. They learned the piano from a young age, and I was surrounded by uh, music from a young age myself. Is there something that defines Celtic? What makes it Celtic? Is it a style, or is it simply the region where it comes from? It's more of a style than anything else. There is no one kind of Celtic area. It's a conglomeration of, I suppose, the north, the northeast of Europe. It would include English, England, uh, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, parts of Europe, including Galicia, more and more in northern Spain, Brittany and northern France. And uh, because it's a style more than from a region, it has a lot of capacity to spread its wings into those areas and indeed out of those areas. So you see a lot of influence coming from exotic areas like Galicia and northern Spain or like uh, Brittany and like further reaches of places like places in Scotland, the islands, for example, are right up to Nova Scotia, uh, which means New Scotland in the Maritimes here and Newfoundland and Halifax and uh, parts of Canada as well. Largely a music driven by immigration, but a music that when you hear it, you will recognize it as Celtic. And that's really the, that's really the criterion that we would use. If you recognize it as Celtic, mm-hmm. then it is Celtic. And Massachusetts has one of the biggest Irish populations in the U.S. Obviously, for people with Irish roots, I'd imagine Celtic music, as it does for you, has you know very strong nostalgic connotations, traditional connotations. But we're also an increasingly diverse state. How do you see the role of Celtic music fitting in in today's Boston, in one that's not predominantly Irish? And um, that's a very good question. Um, but it does. But fit in, it does. And I think what has happened over the years is big showcase entities like Riverdance, for example, have incorporated even further afield than parts of the Celtic world. And they've gone into 
um, you know, rock and roll, orchestral, African-American, um, especially in the dance styles. And uh, that has created a lot of exciting opportunities for us to show what, what is actually a very diverse and growing music. I keep saying that Celtic music is a living thing. It's not just something to be pulled out of a dusty drawer. It lives and is vital and vibrant in the communities and also seeks to collaborate with other forms of music and has been successful in doing that. And we look for more. What do you mean by collaborating with other forms of music? Give me an example. Um, if you look at some of the dance styles, for example, they incorporate in um, a lot of tap, American tap and uh, African-American dance styles into the steps that would have been traditionally uh, Irish or Scottish steps. And that kind of collaboration really works for Irish traditional music, for Scottish traditional music and for whatever the end product is. And again, the success of river dance, I think, has spread the value and the joy of the music and dance far and wide. Sure. And I can really personally relate to that. Um, I'm not Christian. I don't have Celtic roots. But several years ago, you and your wife, Lindsay, invited me to attend a Christmas Celtic sojourn for the first time, your annual live show. And I fell in love with it. It was terrific. And I think part of that for me was the way you're able to use music to cross cultural divides and share different cultures. How do you do it? Well, it's great for you to hear you saying that. I think how I do it is just by doing it and having a welcome, open arms kind of approach to the music. We did the same thing this year um, with our Christmas Celtic. Sunday, our final show of Christmas Celtic happened to be on the first day of Hanukkah. And uh, we had a, a singer come and join us, Lily Henley, who sings in Ladino, for example. She is very, very much committed to the Ladino language and to the whole, um, the whole culture of, of Sephardic Ju Judaism, which is absolutely fascinating. And of course, being from northern Spain, uh, some of the rhythms, some of the use of instruments and instrumentation uh, blend very well in with what we do for Christmas Celtic. I only half joke sometimes, Shira, that a Christmas Celtic sojourn, which celebrated its 20th anniversary this year, I sometimes half joke, a Christmas Celtic sojourn is is the most popular Jewish Christmas show in Boston. Um, and that's because we do incorporate in other uh, traditions. I see Christmas, for example, is about people coming together, families gathering together once a year and celebrating the light that's there. And Hanukkah, to a large extent, is, is the same. It's a festival of light. So it's an easy blend, and we, we don't shy from it. We actually love incorporating in uh, various traditions and various forms of music into our presentation on stage each and every year. And these days, it seems like in so many ways, our country is increasingly divided, particularly based on politics. Do you see arts and culture as having a role in bridging some of those divides? Or what, what is the role of the arts in today's society? I think it's very high. I think what, what happens with, with arts, so if you talk politics, if you talk history, even if you talk literature at times, they seem to uh, you know, have that division inbuilt into them. I think that music and songs and dancing seem to eliminate that and invite people in on their own uh, on their own recognizance, basically. And I think that's a golden opportunity for us to use what we know and our access to musicians and dancers and singers, to use that access to bring people together. You know, we all have 
we all have sorrows, we all have worries, we all have pain and sickness and, and a lot of things that are going on in our lives. I think the role of the arts generally is to reflect those back on us and the role of arts in a performance situation like Christmas Celtic Closure. How lucky are we to be able to present it to large audiences and have been able to do so for, for now over 20 years. You've been at GBH, I believe, since 2001. Um, how have you seen the Boston area music scene change over that time? Well, I think it's changed a lot over that time. I think for the better, it's no longer um, a, a monoculture. It's really a bustling culture. And, um, you know, it's changed fairly dramatically. But, but then again, arts presentation has changed dramatically. And a large part of that change has come in the changing value and the subsequent changing use of real estate, I think. You know, a lot of our great and famous clubs have closed down, but then again, other ones have opened up. It closes one door and opens another. So I see the future of the arts in Boston very positively. And I think there's a recognition at the state house level and indeed at the federal government level of the power of art and, and the arts to really, really uh, create much, you know, a much better living situation for all of our population, and um, and particularly the underserved. So long may that continue, and I think we have every reason to believe that it will. And you mentioned the underserved. That's often been a critique of the arts, particularly here in Boston, is that going to a museum or a symphony or a concert is expensive, is seen as something that's for the elite, or at least the well-off. Do you see that changing? I do see it changing because I think the consciousness of it to begin with at the state house level or at the federal level, the consciousness, or even at the local level, is that it's a, a quality of life issue and access to it is, is, a, is almost a human rights issue. That sounds grandiose, but it's not. It's, it is really a, a people's rights issue. And I think if it's recognized in our government, I think there will be supplements, there will be grants, and supporting the institutions as well, the institutions like the museums, like the GBHs, like the theaters that we operate in, I think is going to become more of an issue down the line as these um, institutions become more expensive to operate. I think in budgeting down the line, we are going to see a more consciousness uh, on the part of our government at all levels. And what will that take? Is it simply a matter of more money or is it a need to change values or culture? I think all of the above and simultaneously as well. I don't think it's one thing. But in the past and in the near past, the value of arts to creating community and to community building has been undervalued. And I think that's changing. Um, I think the lack of the ability to be able to gather like-minded people enjoying live music. I have an expression that I use regularly on air and elsewhere in my life, live music, it's where it's at. And I think people recognize that nowadays. And especially with the pandemic, you know, passing hopefully through us, I think people have recognized what they missed only when it's been gone. And my goodness, has it been gone with the, uh, as I said, with the pandemic, not allowing us to gather with like-minded people to enjoy the arts. I don't think anybody wants that to happen again, whether it's through a pandemic, through a virus, or through lack of funding or lack of attention on the arts. So it's an ill wind, as they say in the, in the Irish proverb, it's an ill wind that blows no good. 
And in the case of this COVID and the pandemic, I think the realization of what we miss when we can't have it is a good uh, outcome. And hopefully we'll have some solid and practical effect with the arts and their presentation. And I remember, I think it was back in 2020, uh, you did a Christmas Celtic sojourn virtually. And even until this year, it seems like you've reintroduced live performances, which I know has always been a big value for you, but you've continued to have that virtual option for audiences that choose it. Do you think COVID has permanently changed the way we present and consume arts in terms of live shows? I think it has in, in many ways for the good. Yes, we, we, I thought that the virtual presentation would be a thing of the past by now, but it's not. We find that there's a lot of demand for it. And the reasons for that are ranged further than they did when we did them initially. When we did them initially, it was essentially because of COVID and us trying to uh, join in with the citizenry in preventing the spread of the, the virus. But nowadays, I think we realize that there are many reasons why people can't come to a live show, whether that's for geographical reasons or, or, or sickness or weather. So we have continued to do a virtual show and we find that it's really very well supported and is in demand. So we will continue to do uh, to produce uh, virtuals for the next few years at least. Have you seen audiences coming back for live shows? Do you think live shows will be where they were pre-COVID? I think they will be, as long as the arts is there to present to them and uh, and produce good art. And I'm talking about music and dance and theater. Um, I think it, it will as soon as you know, as long as people feel comfortable and feel safe, I think more and more the realization that the real benefit of arts presentation is being in the company of like-minded people. I still think live music is where it's at, and I will continue to believe that until proven other otherwise. And I see the audience is already growing back and will be with us um, in increasing numbers in the future. And I certainly hope that's accurate. Now, Brian, some people might say you've got a dream job right now on the radio, surrounded by music, but you also had some pretty terrific jobs much earlier in your career in the 80s and 90s. I'm thinking about when you oversaw events at the New England Patriots Stadium, you helped found Major League Soccer, were general manager of the New England Revolution. So honest question, what's the best job you've ever held? Um, I think the one that I hold now, in actual fact, Shira, I did have some pretty cool jobs and enjoyed very much working in professional sports uh, that you mentioned, um, producing kind of, but in some ways it's the same as what I do now. I love to present music, for example, that was presenting professional sports, again, an art in its own right, but just at a larger level. And soccer was a passion of mine growing up in Ireland and the opportunity to work on the World Cup in 1994, and then to help set up World Cup's legacy back then, which was a a full first division professional league in Major League Soccer, MLS as we called it, and here locally the New England Revolution. That was a dream job come through for me as well. So I, I would be hard pressed if you push me to say what was the best job I've had, but I'm doing pretty well at the moment and really enjoying what I do. Are you still a New England Revolution fan? I am very much still a New England Revolution fan and I really hope one of these years they'll get to win the MLS Cup. On a much more serious note, Brian, you've been open about the fact that you've been diagnosed with terminal brain cancer, glioblastoma, excuse me. You told the Boston Globe that you're kind of okay with it. 
and in an interview on GBH, you focused on the kindness of others and the expertise of your treatment team at MGH. How do you handle a terminal diagnosis with such grace? Well, I would leave it up to you to call it grace, Shira. I call it no, no choice, basically. You know, I can't go back and take door B. Um, but, but there are opportunities. I'm a people person. And there are opportunities, even under such bleak circumstances and prognosis, there are opportunities to see kindness coming through. And I have seen that in the notes that I've received. I'm a big fan of poetry. And I see poetry almost like prayer these days. And people send me poems and send me prayers. They say, I'm praying for you by reading a poem every day, or I'm sending you really positive vibes, or I'm, you know, they say, I'm praying for you, you know, I'm Jewish and I'm praying for you, I'm Muslim and I'm praying for you, I have no faith-based beliefs and I'm praying for you. And I take those prayers as any sort of positive vibes. So I, I see the, the reaction of the community, the reaction of my audience, the reaction of everybody I work with has been to be very, very positive and send those positive vibes in my direction. And I see that as being very, very lucky. And in my team of doctors, where can you do better than being associated with MGA, with Mass General uh, Brigham, MGH in Boston? So there, amidst the bleakness, there's a lot of luck to where I am, what I'm doing, and the type of treatments I am, I am taking. And, you know, they have advised, and I certainly have the, the I certainly have the, the, uh, the ability to take life one day at a time and to basically say to myself, I will continue uh, my life uh, until I can't. And so that, 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 that ability has come from a lot of things and, and um, a lot of places. And a lot of it is just creating that, you know, through my work at GBH, creating that association with the community and those, those relationships directly with the community has given me every reason to believe that I can move forward. And you recently hosted a Christmas Celtic sojourn at the Boston performances. And I was watching virtually, there was just this amazing moment where you were joined on stage with your wife, Lindsay, your two daughters who are also musicians, all singing together for just a beautiful performance. What did it mean to you to have that moment with your family this year? It meant an awful lot, Shira, you know, as I said before, Family is really what has encouraged the and facilitated uh, me as a musician, as a music presenter. So having those folks that you mentioned, my wife and my two daughters who are musicians as well, on stage at the same time and the audience packed in there and really feeding back the most positive of vibes, I think was a was a moment. You know, it's a moment that you you take you don't take for granted, and uh, the fact that they were there on a stage singing Christmas songs with the audience, with everybody as I was gathered on stage. I don't take that type of thing for granted. I take it as a, a special golden moment and it came true to me very, very poignantly. The theme of your Christmas show this year was fittingly legacy. What do you see as your legacy? Well, that was a, that was a question that we were asking when we were putting the show together and we didn't want it to be a memorial in any case. We wanted it to be a celebration of what the legacy of the event itself was. And largely, that's what I see. The legacy of Christmas Celtic Sojourn is more of the event itself and what it will continue to bring to audiences 
rather than something that is going to become traditional or a tribute to me or who I am. And really, the way I see it, Shira, is is that the show, Christmas Celtic Sojourn, has been become important to people. People use it as a kind of a ritual. They go to dinner in the same place, either before or after the show. They perhaps go to it with with the same members of their family or friends or neighbours. And that really is what I like to put out there as the legacy that it is. And there are so many people involved in making that a legacy, too many to mention on this program. You know, we've got musicians, we've got dancers, we've got choreographers, we've got uh, people in the office, we've got the support of GBH, of course, one of the great uh, public broadcasters that recognized in, at an early time the value of this to the community that we broadcast to. And hopefully that will continue for many years to come. If that's the case, a legacy, uh, its legacy will be defined. Not, no, not so much my legacy, even though I'm not shy about that either, but its legacy will get passed down. Do you have any advice for other people who might be starting the year coping with illness or other challenges right now? Um, you know, it's hard because it's not one size fits all. There are so many different variants of everything that we all go through. But try to look at the good side as much as you possibly can. And uh, I think in the interview I, I quoted this before, um, Seamus Heaney, one of my favorite Irish poets who won the Nobel Prize back in the 80s, he said on his gravestone, he said, walk on air against your better judgment. He said, he walks on air against my better judgment, is what he says. And I, I really take that as a kind of a philosophy almost at this particular point, that I want to be as optimistic as I possibly can, knowing the bleakness of my situation as a reality, but also to walk on air, meaning I think, or at least I take it to mean, take chances that you might have put off at other times in your life. And I'm saying this to all of the audience out there, do what you do and do it best and do it with a hunger and a desire for it because you never know what's coming down the road. And that's certainly true in my case, but I'm going to walk on air, maybe against my better judgment, but the heck with it, I'm still going to walk on air. And on behalf of my listeners, I want to say thank you, Brian, for all you've given to cultural life in Boston over more than two decades. Before we conclude with some final music, you'll hear Brian O'Donovan, singer Ma'iri Campbell, and the band Windborn in the 2019 Christmas Celtic Sojourn. I want to remind you that, as always, you can read more on commonwealthmagazine.org. Brian O'Donovan of GBH, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. For all-